One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is a big day in the ever-evolving world of the coronavirus pandemic. Today is the day that non-essential shops open. The day that Prime Minister Boris Johnson says you should spend your way back to happiness. The day that you can go out and buy a car, a shirt, a pair of shoes or even a house, if that's what you fancy doing. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, even football is back in a couple of days' time, even though you won't actually be able to sit in the stadium and watch it. It feels like the start of a new openness, although you would be forgiven for thinking that lockdown is more or less over anyway, given that raves have been taking place with thousands of people in attendance and marches and street battles have been going on regardless of social distancing rules and government guidelines. I was told yesterday in London, where I was not until last night, uh, that basically it looked as though it was a normal Sunday afternoon. People were out in the parks, people were going to pubs which are open and selling people beer and wine and various other alcoholic drinks which they can take away uh, and sit 50 yards away from the pub and drink. Of course, let's get one thing straight. And this is a message to all activists right now, extremists and sundry idiots. The streets of London, which I call home, are not open for fighting. They are not venues for you to organise running battles in. I couldn't care less what your cause is. You have no reason to attack the police, nor do you have a licence to scare off families, tourists or visitors from our great capital. So can we please draw a line under this kind of madness where people think it's a great idea to turn up on a weekend and just start punching and kicking one another. It's not good enough. It is not British. It is not what we do. We live in a democracy. I don't want to see anybody behaving in a criminal manner. And if you do, you will not get any help from me. You will not get uh, any support from me. And you will certainly not uh, get me defending what it is that you are doing. You don't have permission to remove any statues. You don't have any permission to desecrate any memorials, nor vandalise any of our property. Because that is entirely correct. The property that you are vandalising belongs to Britain. It belongs to us, the taxpayer. Violate those rules at your peril and go straight to jail for a very long time. I would be in great support of all of that. You know that it makes sense. Today, we will talk only to sensible people, and you know what to do because you're all very sensible out there. Call us on 0344 499 1000. You are the voices of reason. You are the people who matter. And you are the people for whom we have a great deal of respect. So let us get it on. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we'll be talking to Peter Hitchens. He's been getting on the Statue Act uh, and he's got plenty to say about the lockdown as well. Plus, we'll hear from Tory MP Saki Barty on the opening of all of the shops. What's the first thing you're going to go out there and buy? 
where you actually queue up to buy a pair of trousers, I wouldn't recommend it. First up, though, we're going to talk to William Clouston, uh, who is leader of the Social Democratic Party, because he's going to tell us why he thinks that tribal politics is to blame for all of this madness that we've currently been witnessing. Homeschooling today is all about the Industrial Revolution. Remember those days when we used to make loads of stuff uh, before people were allowed out at the weekends to actually run right? They were too knackered to do it in the past because they were too busy working, for heaven's sake. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, last week, we had a series of what can only be described as brilliant radio shows on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to all of you who contributed. Thanks to all of you who called in. And thanks to a series of wonderful and interesting guests that we spoke to at length over various periods of time uh, and for a number of very, very good reasons. Some people we held to account. Some people we pressed on certain issues. Some people are big names. Some people not such big names. But that's what we do here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. And what I would like to do is to continue uh, with our success of last week uh, and to continue with the incredible numbers of people joining us from other radio stations because they've all become lily-livered, yellow-bellied and completely and utterly useless. We are, of course, the way, the truth and the light. We are the only place to listen to common sense. This is Talk Radio. Let's kick things off right now with the leader of the Social Democratic Party, a very sensible man, William Clouston. William, a very good morning to you. Great to be back, thanks. Thank you very much indeed. You know, I was thinking over the weekend as I watched with some uh, trepidation and horror these kind of running street battles, I thought, you know, what we don't need is for me to come on Monday morning and start to take sides. What we don't need is for me to come in and go, well, of course, if the police had done what they were supposed to do last weekend, we wouldn't have seen what we saw this weekend. What I wanted to do was to see somebody like yourself, William, uh, who is very much removed from that kind of twin system, that whole kind of, you know, party political Mm. tribal scenario where you're either an extremist on the right or you're extremist on the left and the kind of arguments people were having with themselves on Twitter was just quite frankly ridiculous so I thought let's talk to William because he will be able to tell us um, why he thinks or whether he thinks even um, that the the political leaders of our times right now are sort of encouraging this kind of behaviour Well, some of them have an incentive to stoke it up. I mean, certainly the Labour Party's been playing uh, ID politics for years now, and Mm. in a way, that's their base, so they they talk it up. Uh, It's very divisive, and it's it's of no use to us at all. And to import, to think that importing, uh, you know, US-style hyper-racialization of politics into this country uh, is a good idea is such a mistake. I mean, we, we, luckily, we avoided the scourges of uh, fascism and communism, uh, in in the 20th century, and 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 we must we must avoid bringing in this this adver- adversarial style of politics which they have in in, in the states. It's it's absolutely no good at all. We just don't need it. Well, we really don't. I've watched with with incredible sort of incredulity over the course of the last couple of years the way America has gone. And every now and again on social media, you see these kind of running battles in the streets between you know the black clad Antifa brigade, the mm. veterans of American uh, war scenarios. And you, I just think to myself, you know, I lived in America for ten years. I mm. never saw that. There was no that that polarization was not there. But we now see it in almost every city of of America. And you know, I, what yeah. I don't want is to see that happening here. No, uh, and, there, and there are three things. I mean, as Social Democrats, there are three things that we would advise people to do. Uh, it, it is actually difficult, Mike, to, to, to some extent, in calling it out, you're taking part in it, and it's something mm. we try not to do. But there's three things. First, stop ra- ra- racialising everything. Yeah. You know, don't, the idea, the constant idea that you have to have uh, social justice warriors who would, whose 
basic aim is to find some sort of disparity. That's the first thing. And then attribute it to racism. Yeah. And then to demand sort of correction. A lot of these people uh, are really quite infantile and it's very dangerous. So there are, one of the things they've got to realize is that in any uh, multi ethnic, multiracial society, there will be differences. Mm. There really will. Um, and we should the, celebrate those dis, yeah, dis, differences, right? Yeah, we should. We should. I mean, some needs to be challenged, but the but the but you know the, there will be differences, and, and and actually getting along with each other. What they forget, and I wish some of the conservatives would understand this as well, is that getting along with each other um, requires a, a concept, an idea, mm. and the, and the idea is civilized toleration of differences. Yes. You cannot. You 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 know that that's a precondition for a peaceful society. Uh, we will not remain a peaceful society if people constantly radicalize things yeah. and sensationalize things. And I have to say, um, you know, the tragedy in Minneapolis, there's been a lot of opportunism in this, Mike. You know, there's been a huge amount well, of, of course opportunism. There has. And, you know, <clears throat> my old school, Scarborough College, used to have, a, in the 50s and 60s, used to have 10 school rules. And the 10th school rule was, was any breach of common sense is a breach of the school rules. Really? Yeah. Uh, what and, a great idea. Can we bring that back, please? Well, we should. And, and you've got to, I mean, both sides. I'm not going to, I mean, you know, there's, there's probably were mistakes made in, in policing and so on, uh, 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 you know, but the idea that if you're a BLM activist on the streets uh, of London and that throwing bicycles or bottles at the police is, is in the interests of the welfare of black citizens in this state, get off it. That's right. nonsense. Right. And it's a sheer, um, I mean, th- these people don't, will not, uh, survive any sincerity test. No. Well, also, I mean, we spoke on Friday to Gary McFarlane, uh, mm. who is one of the uh, supposed sort of organisers... Great interview. Uh, of, uh, yeah, thank you, of Black Lives Matter. He confessed quite openly, and without me asking him to do so, uh, that they want to, de- to deconstruct the police, to have no police yeah. whatsoever in the country, uh, to basically legalise all drugs and to completely tear down the current democratic process of voting. Now, if that is not a dangerous uh, idea to follow and a dangerous kind of... Um, uh, movement to endorse. I don't know what is. I thought, um, I, I thought that was a great interview because the more we can, Black Lives Matter is a Ben Cobley did a piece on STP Talk, which is great, and I, I think people should read it. Mm. Black Lives Matter is a great slogan, and it's actually a masterpiece of marketing, uh, and, it, and it, it induces the idea that if you criticise that slogan, you're in some way not interested in the welfare of all people or, or right. black people, yeah. which is nonsense. But people should. Have a look at the program, for heaven's sake. Have a look at the program. Dismantling capitalism, defunding uh, the police, slavery reparations. The worst, uh, one, the worst thing I've read, Mike, uh, in anything that's attached to this, is the rhetoric of disrupting what they call the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Yeah, that's insane. Mm. That any no no person could advocate that in America. And 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 on and sincerely believes that's going to help black people or anyone else. No, well, this is it. I mean, and it turns out, as as was revealed by the Times on Saturday, that this guy Gary McFarlane has been a long-term member of the Socialist Worker Party. Yeah. You know, which makes an awful lot of sense given what he's now saying. And the fact that he has attached himself to Black Lives Matter proves that he is entirely an opportunist, entirely somebody who would like to use this as a battering ram to break down the system, which is what he's always advocated. But he's never been listened to before because nobody cares what the Socialist Worker Party thinks, but people are very interested uh, in those people who want to look after the welfare uh, of what they regard as badly treated members of the ethnic minorities. Yeah, but the, the problem is that it's... it's what, I mean, I, I'd expect radicals to radicalise, you know? Yeah, right. So that's, that's sort of not really um, exciting. 
what I've well, been it's really exciting when you find out that he's a radical as opposed to a yeah, campaigner sure. for the issue that you thought he was a campaigner for. Well, BLM in the States is, is completely radicalised. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a revolutionary organisation. It was yeah. ramped up by, largely by uh, sociologists and university departments. We can talk about that. I mean, you know, we, we, we've said before as a party that far, far too many people are going to university. It's not, it's not socially useful. Uh, they come out radicalised. It's not good. But that's a slightly separate thing. Um, you know, it's in his interest to do that. What, what has really astounded me about recent events is the extent to which a lot of uh, BLM claims uh, have not been treated critically. Mm. So they, you get institutions like the Premiership or, or you know, comically, Yorkshire Tea mm. and other, uh, you know... Oh, yeah, we stand other. against racism. OK, great. No, well, we many, all do. No, we all you. do, and we should. But, 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 don't, but don't take on and start retweeting BLM's uh, propaganda because... Well, it's all, well also, you, I would ask Yorkshire Tea one question. Are you absolutely and utterly happy that if I went to where you grow your tea yeah, in Sri Lanka, that I would not find people working in slave-like conditions? Well, you will. You will. And the, that's the point that the, the historian Neil Oliver made the other day about mm. people inanely photographing uh, statue removal and, and desecration of monuments yeah. with, with smartphones that were almost... Yeah. almost Funnily enough, phone. another great interview on this very show. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah, you know, and, and they, they're taking pictures of smartphones, which, which almost certainly have cobalt in, in the mail. Yeah, of by, course they have. By, by child slaves in Africa. And again, it's the sheer uh, disingenuous nature of yeah. it. I, you know, as I say, I don't, it's the institutions, it's the weakness of the institutions in saying, actually, that's wrong. No. You know, well, listen, if hypocrisy was their currency, William, they'd all be millionaires. They would. They would. But it's, it's not. I mean, you know, and the premiership, I mean, you know, uh, again, uh, they're a commercial organisation. Do they want capitalists to be dis- capitalism to dis- dismantled? Do they? You know. Well, it would come as a bit of a surprise to the players who are on £350,000 a week that, sorry, uh, we're going to go back to actually communist values yeah. and we're going yeah. to pay you just enough for you to eat and feed your family. So that amounts to about £50 a week. Thanks very yeah. much. Yeah. No, but, it's, uh, but it does have... You have to take the Lamborghini back. It's, yeah, that'll, that'll come as a surprise. <laughs> but it's the, de- the wider dangers, Mike. It's the wi- where does it go? You see, they, like a lot of these things, they start off with wonderful words, social justice. And the history, if you look at the history of mankind, a lot of these movements start off utopian slogans. And it ends up, uh, you know, in this case, it would end up with commissars sticking pencils through people's hair yeah. at school to decide whether they're an oppressor or a victim. It's nonsense. Mm. And it's so dangerous. I mean, if you look at, do some history, read the history of uh, multi-ethnic states throughout the world. They always, the successful ones, always rely on this concept. I'll go back to it. Civilized toleration of differences. You've got to get that. If you don't understand that, you will not have a successful multi-ethnic society. And, and the ones that, where it fails, Mike, it's usually the successful often conspicuously successful minorities that, that suffer. I mean, the, the, you know, racial violence pogroms against uh, Chinese in, in Indochina or, or Malaysia or Indonesia or uh, Asians we've seen in Uganda in the 1970s, and, and worst of all, tragically, uh, Jewish people in Europe. This is, you know, if you, if you go for um, highly racialized politics and you're not prepared to accept that some uh, groups will, will, will have different outcomes to others. This is where you're headed, and it's terrifying. Well, it is, but how can we get out of it, though, William? What's your view on how we come out the other side? Because I've always said that what we're interested in here at Talk Radio is solutions, not just highlighting problems, and I wonder whether there will be a sort of a certain, shall, shall we say, lack of focus after a while, because an awful lot of these people have got short attention spans and they love the, the, the punch-ups, they love their aggro, but actually, once that all kind of goes away and ceases to be novel, 
what do they do then and what can we do to make sure it doesn't get worse? I think you need to challenge people that are radicalising things. Uh, you need to try and de-escalate. Yeah. And, and that goes, the, the problem, Mike, that we, and I'm not minimising the task because it's, it's gone into the institutions now. So you look, look at, I'll give you an example from the weekend. The Bishop of Dover mm. does a, a speech down there, I think it was in Canterbury, um, uh, talking about a, a racism pandemic. That's untrue. Well, it's, of That's course untrue. it's untrue. Get, and what she should have a look at is get a cop, have a look at the British Social Attitudes Survey and look at the decline uh, in, in, in racist attitudes from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and onwards. It's been wonderful. You know, you can't, and it's wrong for her. To, to, to call, uh, you know, to, to sensationalise in that way. And that's what you've got to do. You've got to call these people out, you know, and say that's just not, it's not a true reflection of Britain. It's funny, if, you, if you're in, in, in the streets, I did a bit of work in Ghana uh, a couple of years ago, and yeah. a lot of the people uh, that I worked with there was on a, a medical charity thing, uh, wanted to come to Britain. They knew that it's one of the most tolerant societies on earth. Yeah. You know, speak, speak to, speak to uh, um, uh, some of the immigrants on the, on the, on the streets of Lisbon, who in many cases come from Angola and Mozambique. Mm. They also want to come to London because yeah. actually they know London's a very tolerant place and it must remain so. So I think you've got to call it out and, and people have got to be stronger in that. But yeah, I also think you've got to deal with causes, not symptoms. Mm. I mean, a lot of the very simplistic attitudes, you know, you get a sort of child, uh, childlike view, you know, there's a disparity. It must be because of uh, racism. No, no. Have a look at the ONS data. You, you'll see uh, hierarchies of, 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 say, earnings. You know, you have Chinese at the top, and you have uh, Indians, and then you, you know, uh, white, whites possibly, and then Bangladeshis and others uh, in different positions. To say that's all to do with racism is actually, at first, it, it's, it doesn't agree with the figures. Because you can't account for that, but you, you, you're making no account of culture, practices, beliefs, and class. I mean, as a, as a political party, the Social Democrats, we talk about class. Class is hugely important. I know Labour don't want to talk about it, but we will. Absolutely brilliant stuff. Thank you, William, very much indeed. William Fauston, their leader of the Social Democratic Party, a man uh, who knows a thing or two about common sense, as indeed do we. Uh, we know a lot about common sense because you provide it to us every single day right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let us talk uh, to Sakib Bharti, Conservative MP for Meriden, former president of the Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce, because today uh, is the day, uh, it is June the 15th, when shops which are non-essential are allowed to open up. Now, uh, depending on where you are, we'd like to hear from you as well because we want to know precisely what shops are opening up and what kinds of things you are seeing. So, Keith, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Uh, it feels, uh, and I said this last week, it feels like today is a bit of a watershed day, does it not, for many communities, for many uh, businesses and for lots of traders as well who are going to be able to get back to making at least some form of income, which for a, a long time, two, maybe three months, they haven't been able to do. Uh, absolutely, Mike. I mean, it's been a very difficult last few months and uh, I'm sure you don't need me to go into all of that. But today, um, I think there's a lot of uh, excitement, some intrepidation as well about the fact that businesses will be reopening um, and starting to get to some degree of normality. Uh, obviously, when I talk about normality, I'm still talking about the new normal because we still have to have uh, social distancing in place and uh, shops are having to manage, uh, you know, the impact of coronavirus. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's a step in the in the right direction. It's a positive step. 
uh, we're obviously taking our our time and taking each step uh, slowly to make sure that we don't push the R rate up too much. Uh, but obviously, we're trying to have that balance between the public health interests uh, and also the economic interests of the country. Sure. And lots of people have asked me questions over the weekend, like what is the difference between going into a shop um, with people being two metres distance from each other uh, and just going into a shop generally? Um, you know, most shops are not like the London Underground. Most shops are not particularly busy. But what is the thinking behind making sure that, you know, one in, one out sort of thing? You know, if you want to go in, you can only go in on your own. You have to be careful about... Because some other people have said to me, you know, I walked into a shop the other day and this guy was wandering about, like, just looking at stuff. And I couldn't go past him because I couldn't, you know, get close enough to him to get past him. I know these are these are seemingly very trivial questions, but, but people want to know the answers to them. Well, no, it's an important question. And, I mean... Look, over the last few months, we've had supermarkets and pharmacies open. And uh, like the gentleman you just referred to, I've been in supermarkets, but I've not been able to cross uh, past someone because uh, I've seen, you know, they're in the way or, you know, they're not following the one-way system. It does happen. Of course it does. But it, I, I think, look, we're always guided by the science. And the science, uh, as it stands at the moment, is saying, well, obviously, two metres is a reasonable distance to have uh, between people. Uh, to make sure that we limit the transmission of uh, the virus. And uh, I think really, you know, shops will, obviously they'll welcome uh, when, you know, we're having a review into the whole two metre, one metre uh, debate at the moment. And they will obviously welcome it if that distance is removed. But I think most people understand that actually there is a public health interest that needs to be balanced here. Yes, exactly right. And what about those who also say, um, yes, it's all very well saying we need to social distance. It's all very well saying we need to let the lockdown kind of emerge slowly. In the meantime, there's people punching hell out of each other on the streets of London. Uh, there's people rioting uh, in uh, the streets of London the previous day. There's people doing it last weekend. There's people having raves up in Manchester uh, and around other parts of the north of England. You know, what's the point? Well, look, the those people who aren't protesting and are respecting uh, the fact that there is a public health crisis uh, going on at the moment, I, I, I thank them for that. I mean, I've been very uh, robust about this. I've spoken about it in the House. Uh, of course, uh, you know, we all have a right to protest in the country. It's one of our most fundamental liberties and it's something we should be proud of and we should protect. Um, and if you are going to go out and protest, if you feel uh, you want to be there, then obviously social distancing should be the priority. And uh, it is worrying when we see people not respecting social distancing irrespective of whether we agree with their views or not um you know there, there is a virus that doesn't doesn't care about those things and all it wants to do is spread and um and it's uh, you know attacks our most the most vulnerable in our society and we it, it, i think we should encourage everybody to remember that yeah but should we not stop encouraging people not to fight each other on the streets of london and actually stop them from doing it i.e ban these marches <laughs> Well, look, obviously, those are uh, decisions done by the police. But uh, I, I've always taken the view that obviously we have a right to protest in this country. I mean, I, I mean, when it comes to punching the police, there's no. Well, I've got a right. That. In that case, I've got a right to go to the pub. So open them up. Well, we, we, we do, uh, obviously, Mike, uh, have to take that into consideration. And, you know, we, we t in terms of the, obviously, the pubs, and I know that's not the point you're making, that, that those decisions uh, will be coming down the way. But the, the thing is, uh, I mean, well, I was just about to say, when it comes to, obviously, punching the police and stuff, there's no excuse about that. And uh, I'm sure you're in agreement with me on that as yeah, well. Yeah, of course I am. Um, 
But my yeah. point, my point, Sakib, is that, you know, and I realise that you're not in the cabinet and you may not have influence in that way. However, surely people like yourself, lawmakers in this country, should be able to say, forget about this right to protest. You know, I've also got a right to see my children, but I didn't see them for eight weeks. I've also got a right to go on holiday, which I cannot currently do. So why on earth can we not stop the people having the right to protest, which will inevitably lead to violence? Well, the, well, Mike. The, well, the first thing I'd say on that is, uh, it's not always inevitable that it leads to violence. Well, I mean, it has done see, in the last three weeks, it, so you know, take ha- it from that. Right. No, I, yeah, and I, I take I take your point, and I actually, um, I, the, the only reason I'm making that point is that we, I normally I acknowledge that there's a minority of people who, who lead to that. Um, I, I take your point, but actually, when it comes to uh, the pro- the protesting, it's one of our most fundamental liberties, and so I, I think it's always uh, a risky area to go down that road. But actually, what we are uh, saying is actually maintain social distancing. And the other thing I'd say is actually, I, I was in complete agreement with the Home Secretary and the Health Secretary, you know, even a couple of weeks ago when they were telling people to stay home, they were asking them to stay home and to respect that. Um, and so, you know, that's really from my position is, I've always said the same thing, which is I encourage people uh, to stay home and yeah, respect but, the fact that- Well, good, uh, Sakib, good luck encouraging anarchists to do what the government tells them. I mean, really? Well, it's very difficult. No, well, look, I, I completely accept that. But, you know, we, we live in a nation where we police by consent and actually where those anarchists uh, do uh, misbehave and break the law. Um, I spoke about this in the House last week and the Home Secretary confirmed that they will be facing the full force of the law. Uh, and I think that's the right thing. Has anyone been arrested from the altercation outside the, 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 the Prime Minister's home, uh, which resulted in a woman police officer being hospitalised for a punctured lung and several broken bones? Has anyone been arrested for that? I have to admit, Mike, I don't, I'm not uh, familiar with that um, uh, particular uh, case in terms of whether anyone's been arrested. So I wouldn't want to give uh, the wrong information out. But I do know uh, the police will be looking through footage. And, and the Home Secretary was very clear that those people who have broken the law, who have engaged in public disorder, will be facing the full force of the law. And certainly on my side of the House, um, and I'm sure cross-party, uh, everyone is in agreement that those who do break the law need to full, face the full force of the law. What role do you think Sadiq Khan has played in this? And has he got the power to ban these marches? Well, um, well, the thing is, I mean, uh, my understanding is in terms of especially when it came to uh, the boarding up of the statues uh, over the weekend, uh, that was a decision uh, taken by Sadiq Khan. Um, you know, I'm open to being corrected on that. But uh, the, the truth uh, of the matter is I was I, I was leaving Westminster on Thursday and I thought it was incredibly sad that we'd got to a stage uh, where, uh, you know, the statue of Winston Churchill was being boarded up, the cenotaph, etc. And, you know, whether it was this protest on this weekend or uh, the one previously, uh, clearly uh, there was a lack of understanding for uh, what Winston Churchill stood for. You know, he was the ultimate anti-fascist. Yeah. He was the one who stood against tyranny. Um, and um, I, I've, I've said to uh, over a number of times, actually, had he not been successful and had he not stood up for us, well, actually, you know, even as an ethnic minority, we, you know, we would be uh, in a very, very different world and very, very much worse off. And um, over the weekend, when we saw, uh, you know, Nazi salutes and things around the cenotaph, I mean, it's just a complete lack of understanding of uh, the sacrifice of millions of people. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Couldn't agree more. Pathetic. But let's put a stop to all of it, shall we? Let's stop the anarchists from marching. Let's stop the people giving Nazi salutes from marching. You know, I believe that we have London City here uh, as an open city for everyone. If I want to bring my children to Westminster on the weekend and show them the mother of all parliaments, I don't expect them to be spat at. I don't expect them to be whacked around the head. I don't expect them to be run over by people on bicycles. You know, I think the city should be made safe for those of us who are law abiding and for those of us who believe in democracy. And I would rather like to see the government leading on that. Well, look, I, I mean, uh, the, uh, there is 
Uh, look, I completely agree with you. If you come uh, to Westminster, you definitely do not want to see that. And I, uh, I completely agree. And actually, look, the most of the protesters, certainly, um, I didn't see, well, I wasn't here for this one, but the, the one uh, a week and a half ago when it had started off on the Wednesday, most of the protesters were peaceful. And uh, look, there have been protests across the country. I mean, Birmingham near where uh, my constituency is and where I live had a very, very peaceful protest with social distancing in place. Uh, there was a protest uh, around Black Lives Matter over the weekend near my constituency and so social distancing was uh, was uh, respected. So there are ways to do this. But uh, obviously, uh, the police, you know, I don't blame the police for the way they've uh, conducted themselves. I think they've they've done it in a way that, you know, with decades of experience trying to manage uh, public disorder, trying to manage hotspots. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's appalling that they were attacked. I think that they should, uh, we should absolutely categorically be tough on those who want to come out here and cause trouble. Um, so I don't think we're uh, too much in disagreement there, Mike. No, I don't think so. Sakeem, thanks very much indeed. Sakeem Barsi there uh, talking to us about the opening of shops this morning, first of all, uh, but also on this ridiculous idea that people think, oh, I've got the right to protest. I've got the right to cause trouble. I've got the right to injure people. No, you haven't. You have not got the right to be a criminal. I'm sorry. And I would like to see this government arresting loads of people from the anarchistic side of Black Lives Matter, the people who have been trying to drag statues down and the people who have been uh, urinating on statues as well and putting Churchill as a racist. I want to see arrests here. I don't want to see arrests being made only from one group just because that tends to suit the police. That's not on. That is not democracy, and that is not what Britain is all about. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Mr Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday. Peter, very good day to you. Morning to you too. I see that you have entered London once more wearing your customary uh, gas mask and I see that you've managed to find a way of putting some spectacles over it. Well, I was surprised. 
surprised. I thought I'd give it a try, but the um, the, the the actual sort of nozzle on the front of the of, of the gas mask seems to have been designed by the the Warsaw Pact gas mask designers to take a pair of reading glasses, yeah. so, so, so you could read Pravda or something. Very good. Well, you know what? I was I was I was much encouraged at the weekend by you slaughtering a lot of mental pygmies on Twitter who thought that by you saying uh, that the left had taken over the country, you must be wrong because the Tories were in power. I was I particularly know. amused by your put down on Ian Birrell. Well, yeah, well, Ian, I'm afraid I barely speak to him, but he, he is clueless about politics. Uh, <laughs> so tell us, tell us why you believe that this country is now in the grip of the left. Well, this is what I wrote my book about the abolition of Britain back in 1999. The, the, people have to understand that revolutions don't happen the way they used to. Mm. No one comes along, seizes the post office and the barracks and the railway station and hoists the red flag over it anymore. Don't people have to, do it. People in bayonets don't do it. What happened was that my generation of, uh, of revolutionary and, and, and left liberal students who came out of university in the late 60s and early 1970s went on a long march through the institutions. And around about 25 years after we all left university, we, we began to get into positions of prominence. Mm. And the ideas which we'd picked up in that time uh, were are, are the ideas of now the, the, the whole the whole politically correct as it used to be called woke uh, series of beliefs, and this came into all kinds of places. You hear it now in the mouths of. of, of judges, quite senior judges, uh, right up to the Supreme Court. Mm. Uh, you hear it in the mouths of police officers. You hear it in the mouths of civil servants. You see it in the, uh, in, in the behavior and announcements of local authorities. All kinds of... And, and, it, and it's constantly pushed in schools. And, of course, it is absolutely dominant at the BBC, uh, which I might say during the past several weeks has only once asked me to make a brief cameo really? appearance on a recorded program, and that was that, right. apart from one regional station. And they do know where to find me. They used to have me on quite a lot, but on, on this they have been so shameful and completely and utterly failing. Well, because they can't possibly... The, they can't, the case against the, the yeah, play. I mean, they can't possibly entertain, uh, you know, this kind of nonsensical um, derision of the government from somebody as, as prominent as you, because they might have to then admit that you might be right. Well, it's not just that. They, have, they, they just don't... There are, and you discover this whenever you go into battle on social media, there are millions of people in this country who are completely unaware that there is a coherent set of, of expert critics who are, are, are actually against the policy being followed by the government of shutting down the economy and, and house arrest and have good reason for doing so. People simply don't know it. They still think, I get, I get patronizing messages, like, there's a virus there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, or, or there's a pandemic, right. as if this answered all questions, right. and as, if, as, as, if, as if there was no contest about the matter at all. Yeah. And, and also with you, with you and I, and people say to me now, oh, look, you, you, Peter has managed to convince you, and I always say, and, and at the risk of boring everybody who's been listening to all of our conversations, you know, the, the dial has moved. You know, I agree with you now because you are making, to me, perfect sense. I also didn't agree with you at the beginning. And I, and I would still say that we needed to do that lockdown for whatever reason at the time. We didn't know what we know now. But I'm more than happy to agree with you now that it is nonsensical. I saw that you posted over the weekend all of these signs. And, and it wasn't really until I saw you doing that that I thought, actually, yeah, this is pretty stupid. You know, stand here, do that put this on, you know, don't go over there, please don't uh, step into this pit until somebody else has stepped out. It is a kind of madness. 
Well, it's like being it's like being a tiny child yeah. again. Uh, and, and when I posted this, a huge number of morons and imbeciles <laughs> on, on, on Twitter who simply I, normally I reply yeah. to attacks on Twitter because they if there's any coherence in them at all, I have this thing called the presumption of intelligence. I assume that there's someone intelligent in there somewhere, and I give them a chance to. Yeah. Argue. But these are just pe- people who who seem to think. By saying it's ridiculous to have on the pavements of the main streets of Oxford signs saying "Walk this way," right. <laughs> right. But, but by, by simply that I was in some way attacking the idea of traffic signs, or that I didn't believe that motor cars should be could be controlled. I had to point out that at 30 miles an hour, a motor car, which is a ton of steel, glass, and rubber, takes 75 feet to stop. Whereas a human being moves at three miles an hour, right. you simply don't have the same system of control for these things, which is why there have never been one-way pavements and, uh, in, in, in most civilized Western cities and there have never been traffic controls for pedestrians because it's not necessary. We're free people. We, yeah. can, we can avoid each other. The real problem, I have to say, in the past few years has not been the coronavirus, but people who, who carry on looking at their, at, at their smartphones the whole time, the zombies who, who career into you. But that, yes, uh, that's, but that's the that's other thing, right? It's not dangerous. It's just silly. But it, they, they, there's simply an inability even to see this infantilizing, this telling us what to do, how to, where to go, where, when we can go out, where we can live, who we can sleep with, all the rest of it. Is, is just an interference in our lives completely unprecedented in our history. And don't you think as well, though, um, that with the background noise being raves happening in Manchester where th- thousands of people are turning up and dancing and singing and being intimate with one another uh, <laughs> vis-a-vis the, uh, the, the rioters in London punching police officers, you know, getting down and dirty with each other, you know, it seems ridiculous that all the rest of us are being told where to stand. Well, it is, of course it is. And it, the, the truth has been from the beginning that the people in charge of this don't really believe it, uh, as, as we learned from the ha- behaviour of Professor Ferguson, mm. his, his very attractive girlfriend, and uh, of Dominic Cummings and his sick children. They, the people who actually were telling us to do this didn't themselves believe it, and they don't believe it. And I was at the, last week, I was at the, uh, the Roads Must Fall demonstration yes. in Oxford. Uh, I, it's completely absurd to imagine there was any kind of serious social distancing going on there because there wasn't. No, of course um, there wasn't. What, I did what, see. What a, I did see. Um, I did see a photograph which I had to actually check wasn't a, a, a setup of you standing uh, amongst the crowd of people taking the bottom, as you described it. No, um, taking the buttock. Yeah, <laughs> they, they, the they, were, they, they were. No, they, it, the photograph is completely genuine, uh, but it was it was taken by someone who didn't like me. Right. Uh, hoping to demonstrate. That's a big that. area, that. <laughs> I'm afraid it is. <laughs> Certainly on, on that demonstration, it, it was it was quite big. Right. I, I, I got I got angrily interrogated by one member of the demonstration. So, well, what do you think of Cecil Rhodes? Oh, I don't think much of him. Actually, a bit of a scoundrel. And that that set him back for about all oh, thirty seconds. Yeah. And then he said, "So, would you say Osama bin Laden was a scoundrel?" And I thought, where are we going well, here? Probably I yes, I think so. Had I had I been had I been critical enough of Cecil Rhodes, mm. to, to, to obviously not. And I, I had to say to him, look, uh, Buster, I'm not your prisoner, and you're not my interrogator. Right. I'm not doing this. There is that's the other thing that happens on Twitter. I was getting quizzed yesterday, uh, and people were saying, "You must tell us what you think about this." I'm like, "Why should I? Why should no. I tell you just because you want me to what I think about something in particular, particularly since you don't even actually have a real name or a real Twitter account?" 
Because it's a trap. Yeah. And, and you all know, because everybody in the broadcasting industry knows perfectly well, and indeed in, in, in newspapers now, after the, the sacking of, a, of an executive at the New York Times for publishing something yeah. with which some of the staff didn't agree. Mm. Sacking. Right. Not, no, sacking of a highly competent and, and well-regarded uh, executive for publishing something in the New York Times. That happens. You all know that there's this constant uh, effort to trap people into saying things which can then be misrepresented yes. as, being, as being bigoted in some way, and then that's the end of you. You're not carted off to prison or, or guillotined at the moment, but what, ha- what does happen to people is they lose their livelihoods, mm. and this is the way in which a very, very strong censorship of opinion now operates in yes. large parts and there is of the world. No, and there is no doubt. And that's what these interrogations are about. Yeah, and there's also no doubt in my mind that the effect quite often for that is not only to trap you and to maybe get you lost lost forever into the sands of time, but also to stop you talking about certain things because there are certain well, arguments now that people will not have, for example, on the trans debate, uh, because it's just not worth it. No, I, uh, there are many things about which I, I, I used to, t- to tr- try and treat my opponents with, with generosity and listen carefully to what they said and argue, uh, and argue as, as, as far as I could mm. with what they said. I, I found that there was absolutely no response to this at all. That, uh, what people would just mine what I'd written mm. for, for, for ways in which to condemn me. I, sometimes I'd be, I went once to a, a public meeting at Oxford University, and the, the, the people the, there was a silent demonstration of, of people against me who, who backed away as I approached. Uh, some of them actually backed into mm. some bushes because they weren't looking where they were going. I right. tried to warn them, but they wouldn't listen because anything right. I said was unacceptable. <laughs> but they were actually handing out these quite long leaflets containing... Clever misrepresentations of mm. things that I have said over many years, yeah. which would uh, plainly this is the indictment which will be brought against me when my show trial finally comes up. Yeah. It's it's all uh, this this terrible word that they use, cancellation. Yes, the people who are who who are who are dealt with in this way are cancelled, mm. like the like the unpersons who who didn't just vanish uh, from 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 sight in the old Soviet Union. They were removed from photographs mm. of events at which they t- take place. Their whole existence was denied. I, I find the word cancellation extraordinarily sinister. Yes, I think you're right. And this comes back to what you were saying earlier about the whole kind of leftis, leftisization, which is a terrible word, I know, which mm. I've just invented, of, of culture in this country. Because presumably the people who are doing this cancelling have been indoctrinated from an early age by the education system, um, by their parents. I've I've got a theory that we have so little to worry about in this country that we've started to invent things to hate because there's nothing to be frightened of anymore. Well, I think there's, there's part, the, the, the left did pretty much run out of its original... The, the, the 1945 Labour government pretty much fulfilled the, the main programmes of, of, of socialism and there wasn't much left to them. They had turned in different directions. I do think, of course, there's, ultimately there's a, there's, a, there's a benevolent impulse in all this. A lot of people who take up these positions do so because they think they're doing good. They mm. think that they can actually make society kinder, nicer and gentler. By yeah. so. And that, that's the problem. That's why it's so hard to fight. And in some cases, of course, it's true. A, a lot of the, uh, the precepts of political correctness are basically just good manners. The problem is the, the, the extra 15%, which is not good manners, but actually self-censorship and indeed um, the creation of a new speak in which mm. thoughts aren't allowed to be done. But anything which w- in which any cult in which the, the, the cultists believe they are, they are benevolent is extraordinarily hard to find. Mm. They think they're good, and they don't think you're wrong. They think you're bad. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, and, that, and you can't actually be re you, you can't be re-educated. You have to be outlawed. You have to be outlawed. You have to be put outside the uh, the group because you're dangerous. Well, you see, I used to think that that, that George Orwell's 1984 had become a bit obsolete mm. after the fall of the communist uh, regimes in in the USSR and Eastern Europe. But I now think it's coming back into prominence because of his very clever realization that the that there is no acceptance at, at all of anything other than total surrender. Yeah. And at the moment at which Winston Smith actually uh, actually declares and means it that he loves Big Brother, that's the moment. Yeah. Everything, all his previous, he and Julia, who, who, who are not to be permitted just secretly to, to, to dissent while publicly conforming, they have to conform in their inner souls. And this is the really terrifying nature mm. of this thing. And not, nothing, nothing short of that is accepted, which is why if you're wrong, as far as they're concerned, you, you can never be right. No, exactly. And also There's the Tory party. Say, nothing you, you could say as a Conservative person which, uh, which could ever be right. Mm. And you've said for a long time, and I think you've been right about this as well, the Tory party has not been Conservative for quite some time. The idea now that they attack small business, uh, they wrap it up in red tape, they make it really difficult uh, for anybody to run a business without uh, having to pay loads and loads of tax to the Exchequer. They've now kind of sold their souls to the economic uh, green movement so that they want everybody to drive around uh, on electric bicycles and electric scooters and walk everywhere. You know, and, and climate change is one of their main planks of, uh, of policy. You know, this is not a Conservative Party under Margaret Thatcher, for example. I was listening to um, a guy talking uh, who's written a book, Dominic Sandbrook, I think, about the Falklands War and remembering what it was like to live under Margaret Thatcher, a proper Conservative. And this couldn't be couldn't be further from the truth. Well, I'm not actually a great, a great enthusiast for, 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 for Lady Thatcher myself, and I, I would say she was much more of a liberal than a conservative. Um, in, in, she, she, she adopted some conservative public positions, but her government was... Well, the Conservative Party under Thatcher was definitely more conservative than this one. Well, that wouldn't be difficult. <laughs> uh, True. I have to say, uh, that would be like, like, like saying you, you had more character than an amoeba. Uh, <laughs> it's it, very it, kind it of you. It isn't really much of a statement. No. I, the, but the, the, the were, there were people in the Conservative Party uh, who had sort of socially, morally and politically conservative opinions who were by and large purged out of any significance at all during the Cameron era. Uh, but I, I, I'm not myself a Thatcherite. I'm not. I, I, I long ago. I don't think I am either. But I long I, ago lost any 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 real real enthusiasm for that. It's another it's a thing for another occasion. Mm. But I, I just wanted to make it plain because I it, 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 she wasn't neither she nor Ronald Reagan, to me, uh, were actually conservatives. They didn't. They they. But people associate them, particularly the left, associate them very much with conservatism. It makes the argument very hard to. If that's what conservatism is then, in my view, you can see in many cases why people don't like it. Well, possibly but so, but certainly is. what they were were leaders, um, which we seem yeah, to need. And we, what we seem to need right now is a leader. And I'm sorry to say, because I have been a great supporter of Boris Johnson and his government up to relatively recently, I just don't think they're doing very much leading anymore. Well, I'm sorry for your loss, uh, <laughs> it, it, but I, don't, I think that it was fairly obvious from from long ago that, that, that Alexander Johnson was never going to be a, a particularly, uh, a particularly convincing leader. I had high hopes. Direction. I did have high hopes. I just, I did think he was cleverer than people made him out to be. Uh, now I'm not so sure. He's cle he's clever at some things. He's very clever at, at securing uh, at securing important office, mm. uh, as he's demonstrated. 
But once he's got it, I don't think he really knows very much what to do about it. Mm. And he doesn't have uh, he doesn't have anything remotely resembling a set of a set of serious beliefs or a basic. No. Philosophy. And do you, do you give him any credence or any leeway, shall we say, for the fact that he is dealing with something pretty unusual? I know that you won't accept the word unprecedented because you say it's been here before. I think it is precedented. But it's yeah, certainly no, I, unusual. I, I, I'm not. I I I won't. I, I try not to be personally unsympathetic to people in, in positions of power and responsibility. From what I know of it, it can be quite lonely and, yeah. and, and quite worrying. And yeah. I don't. There's, there's no point in pretending otherwise. But that if, if these people don't ever get any of these posts unless they've sought them for years, they really, really wanted them. So he, he ought to have known what it was that he wanted to do and what it was that he believed in. And I don't think he knew either. And so what we basically have is a man who was made into a into a superstar by How I Got News For You, mm. uh, which actually, bizarrely enough, could have happened to me, but didn't, because no. they showed, they were looking for a right-wing person on the panel, and they gave me a tryout, and, and they, didn't, they didn't like me, so right. that was the end of that. But it could think... Was it because you wouldn't let any of them if talk? I'd been on, I, the, the, the one time I was on, the amazing effect that it had on, 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 on my personal fame, just in one go... Was astonishing. Well, television that's does what that, doesn't it? Transformed him into a into, yeah. into a national. Well, figure. I mean, week, it, after week after week. Yeah, I mean, amazingly, TV still is the most powerful medium uh, of 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 any kind. Uh, no matter how much we put ourselves out on, on on YouTube, if I was to appear on Question Time, I would be a sort of sensation overnight, as people are, um, as indeed you have been, I'm sure before. But 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 well, it's, it's quite it's quite it's quite good Question Time, but it, it's well, it's it no good anymore. It doesn't begin to compare with with semi entertainment. Programs such no. as "How I Got News for You," and that that was it, by a huge measure. But and that's always been to me the secret of of, of, of Johnson's political mm. success is that he got that he got that immense boost. Everybody knows his name. Everybody knows his face. Everybody knows his voice. And yeah. because he, it's it's an edited program. It, is, it it appears to be live, but it's not. And because they once they've decided to make you a star, they they make you look good. Mm. So he was he was Mr. Funny as well, and he was officially funny, which is a tremendously important thing to be i as you know have no sense of humor at all so, <laughs> i disagree so I, 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 I believe that over the course of the last 11 weeks that we have that we have somehow eked slight humor out of you i have i have a certificate from from the national humorlessness authority <laughs> saying that i've passed all the examinations i really? have no sense of humor at all yeah, now tell me tell me tell me what you think of some of these criticisms of, of your own paper and i don't expect you to be a spokesman for the mail on sunday you're a columnist for them but they were getting a lot of uh, flack over the weekend uh, by asking the question what has happened to britain you know accompanying a picture of uh, some rioters punching each other um whereby uh, people were saying well you should know what's happened to britain because you've created it i mean does the media have any role in having made this country so tribal i i don't think i i, I ha, made the country so tribal no i think that has come from somewhere else altogether mm. where has it come uh, from well again i think it comes when when i when i originally wrote my, my book the one i mentioned earlier the abolition of britain i thought I identified certain people who'd been very active in promoting sort of different kinds of history teaching, yeah. change in the status of, of, of the whole, in huge changes in the status of, of women, the revolution in the schools and all these kinds of things, yeah. which, which is what the book is actually about. But there wasn't some kind of common movement. What had happened, as far as I could see, and I still say this, is that particularly after the First World War, the, all the old Christian beliefs, which had sustained this country much more than people now realize, had collapsed. There was a great vacuum. People didn't know how to be good. 
I didn't know what was good and what and, and what was bad. And it was into that vacuum, all kinds of new ideas came rushing. Mm. And that's been happening ever since. And we, we've just lost our sense of, 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 of comfort. I mean, the country has been tribal for a very long time. I, my theory is that part of it is, is still the abiding division between Norman and Saxon. Yeah. Uh, but also, of course, the the, the 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 Civil War, which again divided the country, then the Industrial Revolution, which created a a, a working class in circumstances of, of great violence and bitterness and and poverty, which again has a huge legacy of resentment. So we are a divided country, and we are we vote tribally, and we have a, an adversarial parliament. But oddly enough, these things have been good for us up till now because it, an adversarial parliament means that no government is ever entirely on top. And the, 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 this real criticism of the government at, at, at the very highest level, but that seems to have gone. And the tribalism, which d no longer takes place in Parliament, has now moved onto the streets. Mm. I uh, think you can blame the newspapers for that. Uh, newspapers have always been in this country partisan. Uh, we, we, we've, we've had a diverse press, and again, that's been a good thing. Uh, but oddly enough, I think it's less diverse than it's been for a very long time. Yes, no, I totally agree. Peter, sadly, we're at the end again, but I'm going to leave you with this one thought and we'll talk about it next time. Uh, somebody's just asked me on Twitter, is Peter Hitchens in favour of anything? He seems to be against everything. So let's talk about that next time, what you're in favour of. Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday, uh, once again, uh, talking a great deal of sense. Some of it you might agree with, some of it you might not agree with. But by all means, do let us know. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. I'm delighted to say that we're going to talk now to Emma Griffin, Professor of Modern British History at the University of East Anglia. Emma, very good afternoon to you. Hi. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, it's quite opposite, I think, that we're going to talk about the Industrial Revolution because we are in a period of time where industry in this country has kind of come to, a, if not a stop, a, a very much of a slowdown. We don't make as much stuff now as we used to make. We're much more about kind of, you know, the financial business or, you know, possibly the tech industry and maybe, you know, manufacturing as such has kind of disappeared. And, and interestingly, as we talk about statues and figures from the past, you know, many of the people who were part of the Industrial Revolution, I suppose you, you might say, would now be considered to be, you know, in quotes, controversial figures. I think that's probably true. Yes, I think a, a number of people who uh, were part of the process of industrialization in Britain probably would be thought of as quite controversial now. But I think also one of the things about the Industrial Revolution that's a bit different is the Industrial Revolution did need some big figures like Brunel, um, who kind of pioneered particular inventions, or there are people, uh, inventors like um, Kay and uh, Hargreaves who invented spinning machines, big figures. But one of the things about the Industrial Revolution as well is that it actually involved millions and millions of ordinary people going to work and doing their job in a very different kind of way. So it's not just a big man kind of history. It actually uh, cuts much deeper into our society. Yes, quite. And what was significant about the, the British Industrial Revolution rather than, say, the European, the Western European Industrial Revolution? Why was it here more than it was there? Okay, well, I think um, I think all industrial revolutions are significant. I don't think the British was more significant, but the thing that we can say about the British industrial revolution that is unusual is that it was first. So that's what's really novel about what happens in Britain. We're the first country that really underwent an industrial revolution. But one of the things I think that makes it such an interesting topic is, of course, we weren't the last. So as soon as we'd started to industrialize, many other countries in Western Europe started to do so, the United States, in the 20th century, we've got uh, Russia and many kind of uh, Asian and other European countries that are part of the Soviet Union. 
Korea and Japan. So industrial revolutions are actually fairly universal or very widespread. What's special about ours is simply that it was first. Yes. And, and in terms of where it kind of began, is there a is there a ground zero, if you like, for where the Industrial Revolution happened? Was it the first sort of mill that was built in the north of England? What was it exactly? OK, so I think it's very difficult to be very precise and particular about an industrial revolution. So it's nothing like something like the French Revolution that happens in a particular place at a particular time. Industrial revolutions happen all over the world and they're always slightly different. And I think we're not asking the right question if we say, where's the very beginning? What's the very origin? Industrialization is all about how we make things and how we how we consume things. So things like our clothing, for example, nowadays it's all factory produced and it's, it's shipped all around the world on tankers and it's sold in shops. But previously, everything that you wore had to be made out of agriculture basically so cotton was grown or la uh, wool was grown then you have to somehow get it off the animals or out of the ground you have to spin it then you have to weave it then you have to cut it up and make it into clothes that you can wear and all of this process is done by hand so industrialization is about the processes changing about how we start to do all of that by machines instead of by hand which means we can make much more things and we can make them much more cheaply mm. so we can have a lot more of these things so that's what industrialization is about um and it happens in every single area of our life so it's not just things like clothes so in britain it was all about cotton textiles it's all about the factories in manchester but actually it's about everything so if we look at denmark for example industrialization was all about the making of butter about the making of cheese and about selling this stuff on the global market so it's a kind of a natural organic agricultural product but it's being produced in a really different way mm. so that's what industrialization is about and did it in involve having to train people in a different way in terms of working those kinds of machines and and becoming more adept at that rather than working sort of more with their hands in the in the farms and stuff like that and was it more um open to, to women then as well absolutely and again i think that's why we're making we're, you know we're really missing a trick if we think that Industrialization is just about the big men who met, who invented the machines because actually it involves everybody at every level. And one of the really interesting things that happens with industrialization almost everywhere is you need workers. You need lots of workers. Um, and in order to get the number of workers, you nearly always need to get women into your factories or into your fields or into your workshops or whatever it is that you're making in this particular part of the world. So you often bring lots of women into the economy in new ways that are quite novel. But yes, it affects everybody and we all have to work in very different ways. So whereas in the old way, people are kind of working according to the seasons, they're living close to the land, their day is punctuated by the, the, the light and by the weather, all of this starts to change with industrialization where machines are made to run for 12 hours a day or however many hours it is and everybody has to work to a kind of regular rhythm and then they get a day off at the weekend so a very different lifestyle and very different working patterns for all of us right and and we're told um particularly in the wake of, of coronavirus that you know we're far too reliant now on china for the things that get manufactured that we buy could we become a, a manufacturing country again if we so wished i mean could we go back to it i suppose is the question as other countries so because we industrialized first and the thing that we did is we made particularly cotton goods much cheaper than anywhere else could make them in the world so india for example had a thriving uh, cotton industry uh, once we started to industrialize, what happens is India just starts sending raw cut cotton to us. 
and then buying back the woven cloth. But of course, they had been making their own woven cloth. And the reason that happens is because we could make it much more cheaply than they could. But as more and more nations start to enter into this uh, field of making things and making them with machines and making them more quickly, it becomes harder and harder to remain at the top. And I think you can see that's what's happened with British manufacturing. We don't make cotton goods now because it's much cheaper for, uh, to employ people in Bangladesh, for example, to do this and pay them much lower wages. So it becomes increasingly difficult unless you have particularly uh, skilled or particularly technologically sophisticated or high-end parts of the market, it becomes very difficult to remain a, uh, a producer of things. So it's not impossible because the United States have continued to do that quite successfully. Germany has done that successfully by carving out kind of niche areas for itself. Um, but I, I think it is it's not the case that every nation can be rich by making things. And you don't have to be making things. What you have to be doing is, sell, is selling a good the rest of the world so you could be selling other kinds of expertise for example call centers for example could be something that you could do for other nations so the idea is to do something for other nations that they can't do for themselves in some way and might be making things but it might be selling a good or a service in, in some kind of service instead right and what would you say emma finally was the sort of golden age for people who are listening to this and they want to kind of frame it in in terms of years what was the golden age for, from and to of the industrial revolution uh, here in Britain? Yeah. Okay, so I think we start to industrialise at the end of the 18th century, around right. 1800. It's clear that we're doing things slightly different from other parts of the world. Um, and really all the way through the 19th century, even one you know, century later in 1900, we've got a much bigger uh, economy than would be expected for a country of our nation, very high levels of GDP per capita. So we're still really punching well above our weight then. But I would add a really important caveat, because one of the things that happens when you industrialize is that societies also become much more unequal. We always see this, we see this almost everywhere, that industrialization makes some people uber, uber, uber rich, and it makes other people a bit richer, but not really very much richer. And you have a huge spread between the rich and the poor. So although we've become a very rich nation by 1914, we've become a much more unequal nation as well. So your experience of being British in the Victorian period is hugely dependent on what kind of worker you are, whether you're a man or a woman, um, and we're a very unequal society. So I don't think we, we I don't think we should look back and say this was a marvelous moment for all of us. It was actually um, very different for different people according to where they were on the income strand. Absolutely. Emma, thank you very much indeed uh, for that little homeschooling section there on the Industrial Revolution. A fascinating period of history, well worth looking up, well worth studying. Uh, if you haven't already done it at school, uh, have a look at it now uh, and check it out. Around about the start of uh, 1800 uh, and on from there, uh, the um, industrialisation of this country. Fascinating period and particularly interesting given what is going on now uh, in our sort of, as they are becoming, becoming known, culture wars uh, over certain figures of people who were industrialists who were merchants who used to import and export loads and loads of different things, including, in some cases, uh, the importation and exportation of human beings, of course. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.